let's make a start. I just just on the back of that week of prayer, and I just want to say how encouraged I was. And hopefully, if you came to any of the prayer stuff this week, you were encouraged by um, by our unity as we prayed together, by the prayers that we prayed. Just lots of praise, kind of given to Jesus for who He is. So I think we kind of had a, a bit of a balance between hopefully 50% of what we were doing, if not more, was just adoring God for who he is, praising him, exalting him, glorifying him for who he was. And then the rest of our time we spent in, in either confession and repentance or pleading with God, pleading with God on behalf of the lost, that he would save, um, on behalf of just the broken in our community and even within our church as well, that he would move, praying for for world missions as well. and. If you are coming this afternoon, if you didn't have a chance to come to, to our house to pray during the 24 hours, all the stuff's still up there. And I'd, and I'd really encourage you to have a read around of the prayers that were written, the things that were stuck with. You'd be so encouraged just at um, uh, the prayers that were prayed um, specifically in our place. The, there was one station in particular. Again, if you were at our house, you would have seen just the different things that were dotted around the room. And there was one that really kind of sucked most of my time as I was praying around. And it was the confession and re repentance station. So um, this was in front of the fire and there was just an opportunity there just to stop, just to slow down and reflect on our sin. And um, if you kind of did this station, there was blank pieces of paper. And the encouragement was there just, just to think on, on ways that we offend God, ways that we sin, ways that we rebel against him. And knowing, for, for all of us who are saved, knowing that, that through the cross of the resurrection, our sin has been paid for, it has been atoned, it has been removed as far as the East and the West. But also knowing the reality that, that we still walk in sin. We still struggle with sin. The reality of sin is still there. And so there was an encouragement just to examine ourselves and just to think, how are we doing that? What are the sins that we are engaged in? And what are the ways that we are offending the heart of God and to write those down and to, to confess of those before God and to repent of those before God. And just as a symbolic act, the fire didn't do anything, it was just an act of symbolism, but as a symbolic act to place that sin in the fire and watch it be burnt up to remind us that our sin has been removed. And when I started, I kind of went around um, early on in the day and, and spent a bit of time there and I kind of sat down in front of it and started thinking on the ways that I'd offended the heart of God. And, and I could think of two things in particular in my life. And so I wrote those things down. I was like, two things, that's all I can think of. And the thought crossed my mind, actually, I'm probably not actually that bad a person. Now knowing that I am a sinner, I'm not kind of saying that I'm, I'm perfect, but, but I could only think of two things. And I thought, this is okay. So I wrote them, them down. And I thought a bit harder and thought, surely there must be more than two sins in my life that I'm struggling with. And so I prayed, and I prayed specifically um, a prayer from, from Psalm 139 where David says this. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And I prayed that. And honestly, I had to stop because I was going to run out of paper. A sin kind of came to, to my mind. And I thought, oh yeah, that is. That is kind of offending God's heart. And then another one came, and then another one on the back of that one. And honestly, I, I probably could have just sat there and gone through all of the paper and all of the logs and used up all of that time just to confess of my sin before God, the floodgates opened. And actually, I realized I'm nowhere near as good as I think I am. 
And I think what happened was as I sat down and initially kind of examined myself, I, I, I almost became deceived or just kind of sat there under the illusion that, that all of these sins that I wasn't aware of, actually they're just kind of normal things. They're not sinful. It's just kind of maybe it's, 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 it's not quite in line with God's word, but it's not quite sin. And these other areas of my life that just kind of kept on coming through, coming, coming to mind as I prayed about it, I'd become so used to those, those things being part of my life that they become normal. They become almost just part of the fabric of, of who I am and, and, and what I do. And in fact, that is the world that we live in. We are immersed in a world that is, is kind of, has an expertise at making sin normal. And making sin and certain sins really ordinary. And it convinces us that, that the thing that we're doing can't, can't really be wrong because it feels so right. And the world convinces us that, that before anything else, we should put ourselves first. We should put our kind of pleasures and our feelings first before anything else. We should be true to ourselves. And if it feels true, then it's probably right. So we should be, we should be doing it. The world convinces us that that our default is, as human beings, that we are inherently good. It, it convinces us that, that, that we're, not, we're not bad, or if, if we are bad, we're not as bad as those people. Or if we are engaging in sin, the sin that I am engaging in isn't affecting anyone else, so, so it's okay. When actually we know all of that is rubbish. We are not inherently good at all. We are inherently bad people. It's so easy to water down the sinfulness of sin and to convince ourselves that we are better than we are. Watering down the sinfulness of sin, trying to to convince ourselves it isn't as bad as it actually is. And that is in stark contrast to the truth of the Bible. When the Bible talks about sin, it doesn't kind of talk about it as this thing which, which can be confused with, with maybe good acts or it doesn't kind of, doesn't confuse it with, okay, well, if it just feels okay, then maybe it's not a sin. Maybe we can kind of get around it. The, the, the Bible is so clear about what sin is and the grievous nature of sin, the, the sinfulness and the seriousness of sin. Sin being the, our stubborn rebellion to God's authority. And the Bible is clear right from the first pages of the book that we are all guilty of it. All of us are guilty of it. Sin has cursed all of creation right from Genesis chapter 3. And nothing will fix that apart from recreation itself. The seriousness of sin brought God the Son from heaven to come and live amongst us. To come and die the worst death that that we could ever imagine the seriousness of sin had jesus the son of god bearing the weight the incomprehensible weight of the father's wrath the seriousness of sin had our our savior jesus christ literally on his knees in the garden of gethsemane as he was filled with terror about what was to come the seriousness of sin has has the cross as a marker in history of the indescribable horror and terror that comes from sin. The cross disallows us from ever considering sin as anything else than grievous rebellion towards our loving creator. Spiritual adultery against the holy God. Shameful trampling on the very source of life and breath and everything that is good. Folks, we are considerably more sinful and broken than we know. Yet, 
if we are his children, if we are God's children, we should know that he refuses to leave us as we are. Because God is zealous for the holiness of his people. Holiness being our right standard before God, our perfection, the removal of sin. God is zealous for the holiness of his people. He has a zeal for our holiness. And, and even in this room, kind of knowing everyone in here, even amongst a group of Christians here, with our understanding of sin and, and God's word, we are still worse than we think we are. We are much more worse than we know. The passage we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is going to show us Jesus blowing the door open on our unholiness, refusing to keep his people as they are and clearing out our sin because he is zealous for our holiness. So we turn to John chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 13 to verse 22 and then I'll pray. John chapter 2, it's page 887. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the tables of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume you. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, help us this morning as we sit under your word. Help us to see the true nature of our sin. Help us to see the weight of it. Help us to feel the weight of it and to, to know what it is in all of its fullness. And at the same time, would we know your love for us? Would we know the extent that you are willing to go to, to rid, of us, rid us of our sin, to make us holy? Jesus, we thank you that you have made a way. Would the eyes of our heart be on you this morning? Would we be people who are willing to make radical choices and, and denials in our life for, for your glory's sake? Holy Spirit, guide us into truth this morning. Help us to see the Son in all of his glory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Imagine the scene then. 2,000 years ago, it's Passover in Jerusalem. The scene here is at the temple. The temple was was one of the most beautiful kind of pieces of architecture in Jerusalem at the time, built by King Herod as a a way of trying to warm and win the Jews towards him. It's Passover week. So in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is kind of the center, the religious center for the Jews. And during Passover week, this one week in the year, all of the Jews, as many as possible, migrate, they kind of travel into Jerusalem from the surrounding areas. Hundreds hundreds and thousands 
of Jews congregating in this one city. And the temple is kind of set in the highest part of the city. And it is the, the kind of holy place for, for the Jews. It's the place that they, they, they long to be at. They gather around. There's something special. There's something significant about this place for the Jews. For them, it is the place where heaven touches earth. It is the dwelling place of God with man. So throughout all of biblical history, you see God desires with his people. He moves from being with God's people in, in a garden and then meeting with them in a tent through the exodus. And then eventually there's a temple built. And this is where he meets with his people. Inside the, the temple, this kind of holy building, it's split into four courts. And each court, as you get closer to the center of the building, increases in its holiness. So right at the center of the temple, you have this room, the Holy of Holies, which is, that is where God's presence meets with his people. And once a year, the high priest will go in there on the Day of Atonement. This Holy of Holies is set within the court of the priests. It's only the consecrated priests who are allowed to enter into this court. And then outside that, that first court, you have the court of Israel. So any Jewish man is able to go into that court and worship. And then outside of that court, you have the third court, the, the court of women. So Jewish women are allowed to go into, into that court. And then right on the outside, the outer kind of court of the temple, you have the court of Gentiles. Now, every one of these courts is holy. They are a place of worship. They are, are a place of significance for God's people. This one on the outside, the court of the Gentiles, anyone who is not a Jewish believer is allowed in. They're allowed to come into, into the holy kind of place of the temple and worship their God. Jesus walks up the, the temple mounts with his disciples. He comes into the temple and he, he enters into the, this outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And you can imagine just hundreds, probably thousands of people around there. Estimates would say there were maybe up to three million people congregating in Jerusalem during this week. So probably thousands of thousands of them have made it up to the temple and are in there. Jesus enters in and as he enters in, there's marketplaces and stores and, and people selling sacrifices so you can, you can uh, make payment for your sin or, or cleanse and whatever it is. And the place is filled with tables of people uh, swapping money for, for, for temple money and swapping their sacrifices for, for money and, and, and it's described as a marketplace. There are money changers, there are people selling sheep, people selling oxen, people selling pigeons, and Jesus enters into this area. And this would have been happening every year. It was nothing unusual. Every year you could go to the temple, you could, you could buy an animal, you could uh, swap your money over. But this time Jesus walks in and he is filled with zeal. He is filled with a righteous anger against what he says. He picks up some, some, some strips from somewhere and makes and fashions together a whip of cords. And he goes about the place and he flips the tables over and there is probably money flying everywhere. There are probably pigeons and birds flying all over the place. There are sheep and oxen kind of being scattered around all over the place. He is filled with zeal from God. And he pushes over these temples. You can imagine him just moving all the way around and don't kind of have a picture of, of this happening in like five or ten seconds. This place is huge, 500 meters wide, 300 meters long. It would have taken him, I don't know, five, 10, who knows, half an hour. It wouldn't have taken him a few seconds, but he goes right across the court and the word of God says, drives them all out. You can imagine the scene. 
the disciples kind of just in complete confusion. They've come up to the temple probably to worship and then all of a sudden just chaos breaks out. Jesus turns to one of the, the men who was selling and he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And immediately the disciples remember the word of God and they remember back to Psalm 69 verse 9 where the same is quoted. Zeal for your house will consume me. That is what is happening here. Jesus isn't just making a scene because he wants to. The zeal of God is filling him for his temple, for his house. And remember, this is something that would have happened every year. They would have set up their stores. They would have swapped their money. They would have sold their sacrifices. There would have, peop- would have been people all around. It was normal and it was ordinary. No one has done this before. No one has kicked off and made a stink about this before. But Jesus sees it for what it is. Jesus walks in and his eyes set on what is going on and he sees what is going on and he knows what is going on. For him, the temple is the place where God meets his people. Every bit of the temple is holy. And these traders are using it for gain. They're using it for profit. This outer court, the court where the Gentiles were allowed to go, and this was a place of worship. It wasn't just a congregating area and a place where you could swap and sell and trade. This was a place of worship for God's people. And these traders are defiling what is holy. Jesus says, this is my father's house. Not a place of trade. Jesus is zealous for his temple to be holy. And just as Jesus was zealous for it then, he is zealous for it now. So we know that God no longer dwells in temples made by hands. But instead, God now dwells in his people. He abides in us. The spirit of God abides in his people. Through Jesus' death on a cross, through his resurrection, the Holy Spirit has now taken up residence in us. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, do you not know that your body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? This isn't a building anymore in Jerusalem that we all have to kind of go to once a year. to to experience the presence of God. Your body is a temple of God. If you're not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There was a shift with the new covenant that took God's presence from a building and brought it into the life of his people. We are the temple of God. The presence of God is with us and in us. And it is in us and through us, through our bodies, through the way that we live and we speak, that God is glorified. He is glorified through our body. And so Jesus is zealous for us, just as he was zealous for the temple back then to be holy. Why? Why does he he fill himself with zeal for, for the holiness of the temple? Why would he be zealous for our holiness? Because he sees our sin. Because he sees the way that we offend God. He sees the ways that we convince ourselves that, that what we are doing is ordinary or just, or just normal or, or not of any significance. And he sees it as an offense. He sees us as his temple. 
So often we will fill our temple, God's temple. We will fill it with things that just push out the good presence and, co- and push out the opportunities for God to do his work. We will fill our bodies with distraction. We will fill our, our bodies with busyness. We will fill our bodies with things which we think are good. But are actually defiling us. Jesus doesn't just have zeal for our holiness because we are, we are, we are, our bodies are a temple of God. But it's also significant where he is in the temple. So he is zealous for, for, for us to be holy because, because God dwells in us. But also when he comes into the temple in John chapter 2, he is coming into the court of the Gentiles. Remember, this is a place where they worship. What is happening as these people set up the, the, their tables and, and, and stack up their money and all these animals are congregating in this part of the temple, in this court, what is happening? The Gentiles can't worship there. This is a holy place and this was their place, the only place in the temple where they could come close to God, close enough to the holy presence of God and they could worship. These people have probably traveled hundreds of miles to be there for this week. And as they come into to, to this kind of holy place where they are going to worship, it is filled with money changers and, and people who are selling things for sacrifice. See, Jesus is zealous for us to be holy because, of, because he wants to rid of us of our sin and rid us of our impurity. But also he sees in the temple here, he is zealous against unholiness because the more sinful we are, the less we are able to be on mission for God. What's happening in the temple is people are unable to to enjoy the presence of God. People are unable to, 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 to meet with God. They are unable to see who he is because their place of worship has been defiled. The sin of other people, the sin of the, the sellers and the traders and the money exchangers is affecting the people that God loves. Jesus has a heart for the nations. Everyone was welcome at the temple, but the Gentiles were unable to worship. We are his temple now. We are the means for the mission. And every sin that we engage in distracts us from that mission. Every sin that we engage in hinders us from being on mission. It hinders our efforts to reach the lost. Jesus is zealous for his temple to be holy. He wants it to be purified. He wants to rid it of sin, but he also wants us to be people who aren't distracted by our sin so we can reach the lost. Jesus is zealous for his temple to be holy. And you might think, well, so what? If we are a Christian here this morning and we know that we are, we are the place that God is pleased to dwell, that we are a temple of God, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If we know that, if we know that the Holy God dwells in us, if we know that Jesus' death was the result of our sin, our unrighteousness, we should want to join with him in ripping out sin and purifying our bodies from it. If we truly love God, we should willingly want to wage war against sin in our lives. If we truly love God and see the extents that he has gone so that we can be the temple of the Holy Spirit, we should be people who are zealous for our own own holiness. What does that look like? What does it look like for us to be people who are zealous for our holiness? Well, first, we need to see our sin like Jesus sees it. 
we need to stop convincing ourselves that the things that we just we've been doing for years and years and they haven't really affected other people are just ordinary and normal and because they're doing it it's okay we need to see our sin as rebellion against the holy god we need to see our sin as us walking into darkness inviting the enemy to do a work we need to see our sin as a holy inferior option than walking in righteousness we need to see our sin which drove jesus to his knees in the garden of gethsemane we need to see our sin as the thing that 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 led to his torture him being bent over and his back being ripped open we need to see our sin which caused the humiliation of jesus the son of god we need to see our sin as the thing which had him nailed to the cross we need to see our sin as potent folks not something to be played with, not something to be passed over, not something that we, we quickly brush under the carpet. Sin is serious. It is powerful. And it led Jesus to be filled with zeal, to clear out his temple. We need to see our sin for the serious offense against God that it is. And we should see our sin as a distraction from the mission. All of the sin that we engage in just distracts us from the very thing that we were made to do. The very thing that we were meant to pour our life into, to reach the lost, to make the glory of God known in the world. Our sin hinders us from doing that. If we have a passion for mission, we have to have a passion for personal holiness. I wonder if you found this the last kind of few hours for those of us who have been fasting and praying. The, the, the kind of focus of our fast over this 24 hours is, is that we would plead before God for him to save the lost. That is what we desperately want from him to do. That has been my prayer like the last few hours from four o'clock yesterday afternoon. But I can't help as I'm, as I'm fasting and as I'm praying. And that is my prayer. But at the same time, I can't help. And, and this is just something that happens with fasting. Seeing more and more my sinfulness. As I'm praying for the lost, God's also revealing to me at the same time. The offences against him. My sin against him. A passion for holiness goes hand in hand with a passion for mission. We cannot assume that we can go out and speak the truths of the gospel while just ignoring our sin at the same time. Hebrews 12, chapter 1 says this. Most of you will know these verses. We've looked at them over the last um, few months. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race that is set before us is a race of of walking in increasing um, conformity to Jesus Christ. The race that is set before us is being heralds of the gospel. And the writer of Hebrews is, is saying that there are ways in which sin can kind of hold us back. Like we're trying to run this race for the glory of God to be known as as people know him, as we share the gospel. But sin clings so closely and prevents us from running and entangles us. It prevents us from being people on the mission. Folks, we need to have a zeal for holiness. We need to see our sin as Jesus sees it, as an offense against God and also as a restraint for us walking on mission. Sin steals our focus. It steals our energy of what we were created to do. And I can illustrate this really easily with our phones. 
how often do our phones distract us? How often do we just kind of jump on our phone just to check that one thing and, and 10, 15, 20, half an hour, God forbid, an hour later, we are still wasting time on our phone. Now, here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that kind of looking at your phone is a sin, <coughs> how it has distracted you from what you intended to do in that moment. How it has distracted and robbed your time away from, from opportunities and encouraging the body or, or proclaiming the gospel. Sin distracts us from the mission. Our zeal for holiness, folks, is proportionate to our fruit and mission. It is. If we don't take our sin seriously, if we don't take our holiness seriously, how can we expect that God would, would send us out and be, be faithful heralds when actually we're so messed up ourselves and refusing to deal with the sin in our own lives? So first, we need to see our sin like Jesus sees it. Secondly, we need to rip it out. We need to kill our sin. We need to rid our bodies, our bodies, our temples of the Holy Spirit. And we need, to, we need to see the sin, we need to identify it, and then we need to rip it out. Don't let it stay there. Don't let it linger. Don't, don't invite it in. Don't leave the doors open. Don't welcome sin in. Identify it and rip it out. We don't leave it there just to take up, take up residence and kind of feed it every now and again and make sure the sin is comfortable. No, we see it for what it is, the grievous offense for what it is, and we hate it with every fiber of our being. And we put all of our efforts into killing it and ripping it out for the glory of God. If we don't, if we just kind of, if we're happy to kind of leave it there, we need to see the offense that that is to God. Before Elizabeth and I got married, both of us had um, different girlfriends and different boyfriends. Imagine if when we got married that I kind of pulled out a few of the photos of my girlfriends and kind of popped them up on the mantelpiece and, and said to Elizabeth, oh, by the way, um, I've invited a couple of the girls around for dinner. I hope that's okay. And they kind of come in and then they, and then they uh, you know, Johnny moves out and they start living in the loft and we start eating breakfast together and having romantic meals. And Elizabeth come home. That's so offensive to Elizabeth. I wouldn't dream of doing that. I wouldn't dream of dragging something that was, that was part of my previous life back into this life now to enjoy all the while she is sitting there and looking on. Yeah, we can laugh at it. It is funny, but it's sick. And how often we do that with our own sin. And we are happy to entertain the sin in our life and kind of feed it and put it, give it a, a special place on the mantelpiece and refuse to do anything with it because we love it so much. That is an offense to God, folks. We need to rip it out and kill it. And we don't do that alone. We do that with the help of God because sin is potent and it is serious and we cannot deal with it on our own. So here's what you should do. I'd encourage us all to do this, to go home. And if you haven't done this already, write out a list. Try and think, pray that prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Write that down, pray it. And then write out a list of all the ways that you are offending the heart of God. All of the areas of your life where you are struggling with sin. Confess of that sin. Repent of that sin and ask for help from God by his Holy Spirit to put that sin to death. To kill that sin. 
Asking for a zeal, a fervor for holiness. Pray. You cannot do that alone. Invite God in and ask him to help you in your weakness and rip that sin out. And as you pray, it might be that as you pray, that kind of thing just moves away. And God in his sovereign power deals with that sin and it is never to be seen again. It might be that God does all the heavy lifting and he kind of deals with it all through prayer. But it might also be that you have to do specific radical things in your life to clear away that sin. It might be that you have to kind of approach that person that you are harboring unforgiveness against and, and seek Seek their forgiveness and apologize. It might be that you have to kind of push past the pain of denial in your life, whatever that looks like. Whatever the sin is that you, you find yourself coming back to again and again, it might be that prayer just, just isn't the only thing that you need. You also need to take the weight. It might be that you need to stop, start stopping eating certain foods or drinking certain drinks. It might be that you, you need to turn this off. Or take certain apps off or get, get some sort of accountability software on your phone. It might be that you kind of stop watching certain things or listening to certain things. But I would say most of the time we pray with God, we ask him to walk with us in killing our sin. And most of the time there's something that we need to do as well. There are practical ways and things that we need to do to be killing our sin. So yes, pray to God. Yes, rely on the Holy Spirit to do a work. But then don't just sit back. And wait for this kind of supernatural event to happen and, and the next morning you wake up and you're walking perfectly. That happens sometimes, but more often than not, there are ways and means which we have to walk in as well to kill our sin. See sin like Jesus sees it. Kill sin. And be prepared for pain. Be prepared for the pain. As God does a work and removes that sin from your life, it will be painful. All of us know if we have something in our body, if we kind of step on a, on a, on a thorn or get a splinter in our, in our finger or our toe, it hurts to pull it out, doesn't it? And, and you kind of think the more serious the kind of thing is in your body, like Ella would say, I, I guess if you're taking an organ out of someone, it's going to be painful. Hopefully you won't feel it at the time, but like a few hours later, as you come out from, from the anesthetic, you're going to feel that pain. When something is removed from our body, it's painful. And it's so often the same with sin. Picks that scene again of Jesus coming through the table, uh, the temple, flipping the tables up. Animals going everywhere. People just losing their heads. They don't know what's going on. It is a scene of chaos. Hundreds of traders trying to kind of work out, that was my money. No, no that was my money. That's my animal then. And there's just chaos everywhere. Thousands of animals being scattered across the temple. Jesus driving them all out. Mess everywhere. Noise everywhere as people are shouting and just, just in disbelief of what has happened. And the disciples just probably standing there with their, their mouths wide open, maybe even trying to restrain Jesus. It would have been a scene of, of confusion and, and mayhem. If this is God, Jesus, full of zeal, and his goal is in chaos in that moment. His goal is bringing order and peace and purity to his temple. That same God desires folks to flip the tables of our idols and drive out sin from our lives. And so often we look at it and it feels painful. And it looks like chaos and it just looks like mayhem. 
Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 12 again. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. The pain that we so often feel when we are walking in denial to our sin. There's a lady there, mate, so I want to make sure she's okay. The pain that we feel when we, when we walk in denial for our sin and, and allow God by his Holy Spirit to do a sanctifying work in us. That is, that is the love of God in our lives, folks. That is God treating us as sons. How unloving would it be for those of us who are fathers when our, when our sons are, are, are acting in rebellion like half an hour ago? How, how unloving would it be for Matt just to stay there while, while Gideon's playing up? That wouldn't be loving. For Matt to enable his son and say, oh, it's all right, son, carry on. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Just, just keep going. That would be so unloving for a father to do that. And in the same way, God loves us by disciplining us. Because Jesus is zealous for our holiness, he will do a work that often looks messy, often looks painful, often looks chaotic, but we need to see that what he is doing is loving us. He is loving us. He's disciplining us because he loves us. There are so many things that are going on in our lives, in the life of the church, even just this week, and we should expect it as we kind of come before God in prayer that we would feel the push and we would feel almost darkness kind of closing in. And last week I mentioned there was kind of just a, a range of issues that are kind of floating around around the church and, and each one on the outside, kind of serious issues and even things will come up again this week in the life of the church, serious, weighty, dark things that people are struggling with. And on the surface you look at these things and they look, they look chaotic. It looks painful. It looks like the enemy is winning. It looks like the enemy is advancing. But can I say, praise be to God, that in every single one of those circumstances, every single one that was going on last week and every single one that has been raised this week, every single one has been brought into the light. And every single one is bringing those people into conformity of Christ. It feels painful at the moment as, as darkness is exposed, as our sin is kind of put on display. But God is doing a tremendous work as he does that, folks. He is bringing the darkness into light. He is bringing sin into a, into a realm, into an area where the community can walk it together and where he, by his Holy Spirit, can purge us of that sin. We need to see our sin like Jesus sees it. Rebellion against God. A distraction from the mission. We need to take it seriously and rip it out. With the help of God. And we need to be prepared for pain. But see that pain as the loving hand of God. Disciplining those who he loves. To be zealous for holiness is to see our sin, to put it to death. To be prepared for, for pain. And to know that we are loved to know that we are loved I'm going to take this meal now and this meal is a reminder of that for those of us who are fasting this is going to be a light relief for the food that we haven't had in the last few hours please don't take half the back just take <laughs> take a morsel but actually there's something in that 
like, I can't wait to have a little bit of it because I'm hungry. But actually, when we kind of deny deny worldly things and we kind of just focus on God just, just so intently, even just through fasting or prayer, or as we're trying to walk away from sin, actually the things of God become so sweet to us, don't they? We crave them all the more. When we see sin for what it is, when we see kind of worldliness for what it is, the beauty of Christ shines so bright. And as we take this meal now, that is exactly what I want us to do. We take this meal and we just, let's just spend a few moments in quiet. We're not going to pray together this morning. I want us just to do this on our own. And individually just bow our heads in prayer and spend a few minutes in confession and repentance. We'll throw up Psalm 139. Use that as a prayer. Would you be bold and courageous enough to ask the Holy Spirit to search the depths of your heart this morning and to reveal within you the ways in which you are still offending the heart of God? To confess of that, to have a zeal for holiness and repent of it, and to welcome the discipline and work of God as His Holy Spirit works with you to kill that sin, to rip it out. And in that moment, in the weeks and the days to come, you should be prepared for pain as you deny those things. But as you do know the loving hand of God, he does this because you are his sons and daughters. And he disciplines those that he loves. So I'm going to break the bread. I'll give thanks for it. When you're ready, come up. Um, take of, of the meal. Take of the, the bread. Take of the wine and the juice. So we are going to do this individually, but folks, if there's somebody who wants to, if you want to be prayed with, please just grab someone and do that. Um, these are opportunities, and this meal is a meal where the community gathers together in unity to serve one another. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this meal is for you. If you confess him as your Lord and Savior, then this meal is for you. And just come up when you're ready, and then return to your seat, and then Matty will closes with song. Let's give thanks for this meal. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body which was broken. Thank you that the suffering that you endured on the cross, the turmoil that, that brought you to your knees in the garden, the humiliation which you received as, as you were stripped bare, and mocked the agony which you endured as you hung on the cross your body which was ripped open we thank you that for those of us who are yours we sit here as the fruit of that this morning we thank you that though we still struggle with sin and, and it does so easily entangle us and, and prevents us from walking clearly in the mission that you set before us, we thank you that our sin does not condemn us anymore. It does not hold us. It does not claim us. That we, we do not belong to, to, to Satan. We do not, uh, 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 we're not heading towards eternal death. We have been liberated and freed and set free from every weight of sin. So help us now, Holy Spirit. As we prepare to take this meal, help us to be honest with ourselves. Search the depths of our hearts and reveal in us any way which is offending you. And give us strength to confess of those things before you 
to truly repent of them, to, to turn around and walk away from them? Would we feel the, just the momentary weight of, of engaging in that sin? I would ask that we feel just the momentary realisation of the guilt that is due to us because of that sin. The Holy Spirit, would you be quick to rush in with love from God? Would you console our hearts? Would you remind us of the gospel? That though our sins are scarlet, Jesus Christ, you have washed them white as snow. You have paid it all. You have atoned for our sin, every single one of them. Help us to believe, help us to take hope in the resurrection that Jesus, three days later, you rose again, conquering Satan's sin and death. Depositing in us your Holy Spirit so we can be zealous for our holiness. We thank you for the body that you brought us into. So we celebrate this meal as much as it causes us to remind us of our sin. We celebrate the finished work of the cross. That we are forgiven. We are redeemed. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Never to be let go again. And through the resurrection we have been given the newness of life. We have been born again as new creations with hearts that long after you. So we thank you for your body which was broken. We thank you for your blood which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, we thank you for this meal and all that it causes us to remember. By it, through it, in remembrance of what has gone before, make us zealous for your glory as we are zealous for our holiness. For your namesake and for your glory alone. Amen.